about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Okay. Uh, So this week I am beginning... Uh, a series of sermons on Psalm 119 uh, that we will come back to now and again throughout the year. It's not all going to be in one go Uh, because it will be a long series, this series, Uh, because it is a long psalm, the long psalm, in fact. Uh, That's what the long psalm has often been, that's what Psalm 119 has often been known as in the past, the long psalm. It has 22 stanzas, and 176 verses. I don't know if the series will be as long as the one preached by Ambrose of Milan, who did 22 sermons, Um, but maybe, because I don't want to rush. I don't want to rush. This is not a part of the Bible that rewards rushing. When you rush through this psalm, what, what happens is that you feel like the whole psalm is just the same. Because this psalm is kind of modest, it's discreet, it doesn't share its treasures quickly, but it rewards patience. I've been sitting with this psalm for some time now, um, well over a decade, uh, and now I want us to sit with it for a little while as well. As I said, not all in a row, Uh, next week actually we're beginning on 2 Timothy. Uh, I plan to preach on this psalm about once a term for a while. And maybe I'll never finish it, but just fair warning, if you're interested, you know, stay at church here for the next six years and you'll probably get the whole series. I think it's the right approach anyway. Um, I'm prepared to bet that Psalm 119 is... Actually, first let me pray as we begin all that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this rich and wonderful part of your word. O Lord, teach us your statutes as we read it. Amen. Uh, So I'm prepared to bet that Psalm 119 is not a part of the Bible that many of us know very well, even if if you've read it. Uh, Indeed, it's part of the Bible that feels strange, even a bit alien. It feels like a poem kind of from another world. Part of the reason for this is its form. It is a long poem. Um, And when was the last time you read a long poem? And if you did, because there's some people here who who might have just finished, you know, reading the Iliad or something, um, or the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the chances are that the long poem you read was a narrative poem, a poem with a kind of plot line. But Psalm 119 is not like that. It doesn't have much of a narrative. What it does, actually, is come at the same questions, the same theme, over and over again. Like someone looking at the same object from a whole lot of different angles. I think a good analogy for what's going on in this psalm is Monet's haystack paintings. Do you know these these paintings? Have you seen them before? Well, Monet actually painted 25 pictures of the same grain stacks, haystacks, in different lights and seasons. They're recognisably the same 
stacks, but each one is a different painting. Psalm 119 is a bit like that. Each of the 22 stanzas kind of pictures the same issues in a different light, with a different colour. Another problem we have is that some of the features of this poem only work in its original language, which is Hebrew. Uh, You may or may not know, but this psalm is actually an enormous acrostic poem. What's an acrostic poem? You're trying to remember from year eight English or whatever. That's a poem where the first letter of each line is determined by a a word or a pattern. Uh, And in this case, the 22 stanzas correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew has 22 letters in the alphabet. Um, So that every stanza, which each stanza has eight lines, and each line begins with that stanza's letter. So the stanza that Naduni just read is the A stanza. Uh, The first eight lines start with the Hebrew letter Aleph, A. The next eight, which you can see there, they start with Bait, or B. There's also great discipline to the poetry in the Hebrew. Every line has between five and seven words. And almost every line contains one of nine key words, uh, which are never in the first position. Now, this is almost impossible to catch all of this in English. You just can't do it, actually, not least because we have more letters in the alphabet. But do know that Psalm 119 is one of the great poetic achievements of the Bible. But as I said, this all makes this psalm a bit difficult for us. And yet, I don't actually think these things are the real reasons we find this psalm off-putting. I think Psalm 119 has always been a little bit alienating. In verse 19 of the psalm, the psalmist actually says, I am a stranger on earth. He felt himself alienated from others, even in his own time. Was he just a weird guy? I suspect he was a bit odd. Uh, But that isn't what puts us off. What puts us off fundamentally, actually, is the content of this poem. It's theme. Above all, it is the way the poet in the psalm holds together two things, searing self-criticism and love for God's law. On the one hand, from beginning to end, the poet is genuinely, even sometimes brutally, critical of himself. Oh, that my ways were steadfast, he cries in the first stanza that we read. And in the very last line of the poem, he says, I have strayed like a lost sheep, verse 176. This is not a triumphant poem. It's a poem full of anxiety and self-doubt and consciousness of failure. The poet says things like, I am small and despised. It's not a poem full of positive self-talk and self-esteem. But on the other hand, the whole poem is charged with deep, passionate love for God's law. Again and again he says it, I delight in your decrees. How I longed for your precepts. Your statutes are the joy of my heart. I obey your statutes for I love them greatly. 
genuine, heartfelt passion for the law. It takes him to places we find hard to understand. My eyes shed streams of tears because your law is not kept. I think this is a combination that we find difficult to hold together, genuine, critical honesty about ourselves and genuine love for God's law. Those things, it's like they're pushing apart like magnets, but right there, in that combination, exactly there is where we will find this psalm's power. And so what I want to do as we begin to look at this psalm today is just to see how these ideas emerge straight away in the first stanza and begin to consider where they might lead us. On your outline, by the way, which is there in the sheet, there are some small changes uh, to make. The main one is where it says point four, um, just cross point four out. Doesn't exist. That's the next sermon. So there you go. All right, let's begin at the beginning. The gift of instruction. The poem actually opens with the psalmist explaining why he loves God's law. It is because the law opens a path to true happiness. Look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. What is it to be blessed? Blessed. Blessed. That Hebrew word can also be translated happy. But it means more than just a feeling of happiness. It means something like truly well off, truly worthy of respect and admiration. It means what we, we really should desire because it is what God judges good and will reward in the end. It's a word that kind of means what it looks like for your life to turn out well in the fullest and richest sense. What the psalmist is saying is how lucky, I mean lucky is the wrong word as well, but how extraordinarily well off those whose way are blameless. How much I desire to be like them, he says. And what he says, you see, is that Blessedness lies in walking according to God's law. Notice the, metas, the metaphor of walking and ways. Did you catch that language? It's absolutely central to the way this psalm pictures life, and it's very powerful in the opening stanza. It uses the language of walking and ways five times in the first five verses. The idea is that we all have to make our way through life. We just do. We have to take some paths rather than others. And the way that works, the paths that work, says the psalmist, is the way that God has set his stamp of approval on, God's way. That's the way that leads to true happiness. This is why the emphasis here is not actually on the people in view and how well they do. The emphasis is on how good God's paths are. In verse 3, where it says there, they do no wrong but follow his ways, the sense is not, wow, look at them. They aren't getting anything wrong. They're so impressive. No, the, the sense is, 
Wow, how impressive are God's ways. When you take them, you don't go wrong at all. Do you see the difference? Actually, the Hebrew could be taken just like that. It could be translated, indeed, they do no wrong, for they walk in his ways. The point is not how good the people are, but how good God's ways are. Why is this? Why are they so good? Because it doesn't actually seem like that's right. If you ask a hundred people, there's a hundred people here, if we asked everybody, what is the path to a truly rich and fulfilling life? You would get a multitude of answers. Some people might talk about doing what you love. Others might talk about relationships or bounty and leisure or cultivating the intellect or the spiritual life. Some people might talk about sex or aging well or being in touch with nature. Some will confess that they don't really know. What won't seem obvious to everyone is that what this poet says is right, that the answer to that question emphatically is to walk in God's ways. But there is a reason the poet says this, and it comes in verse 4. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. This line stands out in the stanza, actually, uh, before it comes a flow of lines about the righteous in general. After it, the the poet is going to talk about himself. He's going to start saying, me and I. But in the middle, standing alone, the poet speaks about God, or rather, I should say, he speaks to God. You, he says. In Hebrew, the word you begins with a, aleph, and so he can put it at the beginning so that it really stands out. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. That is the bedrock truth that makes all the difference. If this wasn't the case, then there would be lots of room to discuss and debate about the way to true happiness, which path leads to blessing. But that discussion must stand aside because, in fact, God has told us what is good. He has laid down his precepts and made it our task to keep them. I think one reason that we sometimes don't value the Bible like the poet of Psalm 119 does is because we forget this truth. Or if we don't forget it, still it doesn't occupy the the decisive place in our attention that it does in this psalm. For the psalmist, this fact just looms very large. God has commanded and he expects us to obey. How large does that loom in your attention as you make your way through life, that there is a God who has commanded the ways in which human beings must live, who has laid down precepts that are not just guidelines, friendly suggestions, but are to be kept utterly. 
And this is why the psalmist loves the law, you see. Because he sees clearly that he really needs the law. Because it shows him the way God has commanded. It marks out the path. And so it is, in fact, the decisive key to his true happiness, to his life turning out well, to the successful living of his life. God's word marks out the way that he must go if he's not going to make a mess of things. But he has made a mess of things. That's what comes into view now immediately as the psalm continues. Did you notice verse 5? Oh, that my ways were steadfast. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. At the beginning of this psalm, it's really easy to feel put off by this picture of the righteous walking blamelessly through life, perfect people obeying God and getting everything right. But what we now discover is that the poet does not think that he's one of those people. He doesn't think he's one of them. On the contrary, what he knows about himself is that his ways are not blameless. In fact, his experience is one of being put to shame when he considers God's commands. Did you notice that? His experience of reading the Bible is at least partly an experience of being made ashamed. Ashamed of what? Well, clearly of himself and of his own inconsistency, of the fact that his own ways, they're not steadfast, they're not consistent, they're not firmly founded in obedience. I reckon you know this experience. I do. The experience of knowing yourself to be weak. Knowing that you don't always follow through on your intentions. You don't always live in accord with what you believe and know to be good and what you know God has said. I reckon most of us know ways in which we have given in to temptation, taken a step that we know we shouldn't have taken and afterwards feel shame. Now, shame is a very unpleasant feeling and our instinct is to avoid it. And for this reason, our standard strategy is to avoid facing our failures very honestly. We, what we do is we move on quickly to something else. We stop ourselves thinking too much with excuses and distractions. This is not a good strategy because our shame doesn't go away. It just ends up showing up somewhere else in different forms, especially anger and resentment towards other people. But it is where we go by instinct. We avoid it. This is another reason we often struggle with the Bible, because it does sometimes put us to shame. It shows us our failings and our faults. People sometimes talk as if reading the Bible was an easy thing to do, 
And it's not too hard to do the actual reading. But to listen to it can be exhausting. It's frankly easier to look away. But what's really striking about Psalm 119 is that the poet does not look away at all. Even though God's word does show him his own weakness, he doesn't flee from this. Instead, he goes more deeply in. Why? Why? I think this is the great enigma of this poem. Indeed, I reckon it is the key to its secrets. Why doesn't his shame turn him away from God's word? How is this poet able both to see himself without illusion, which is so hard, and at the same time to grow in love for God's law rather than resenting it? The answer, I think, is that beyond the rebuke, beyond the word of judgment he feels from God's word, he also finds buried even deeper, like a hidden inner sanctuary. He finds a promise. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart. As I learn your righteous laws, I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Where does he get this confidence from? He has just confessed his weakness. Now he has somehow found new hope for himself. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will obey your decrees. Somehow, despite his failings, the poet has found this promise of righteousness for himself. There is a translation matter to be aware of here. The word translated laws in that second line there um, is better translated judgments. It's one of the nine key words used in almost every line throughout this psalm to describe the variety of God's Words. I'm going to come back to this in later sermons, so don't, don't worry too much about it. But it's really hard for English translations to consistently catch those different words. But in the Hebrew, the word here is judgments. I will, I will, I will learn your righteous judgments. And I think for the Christian reader of this psalm, uh, that's just too much. That's too much. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous judgments. It's too much because that is exactly the language the Apostle Paul uses to describe the gospel. What has been revealed in the gospel, says Paul, is the righteousness of God, God's act of righteousness by which Jesus Christ, the only one, to use the language of this psalm, the only one whose way was blameless, the only one whose ways always were steadfast in obedience. He gave himself up as a sacrifice of atonement so that we could be justified. If this message is new for you, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about it at more length. Many of us will know it, but 
The language is the same. The promise that we might be justified and in the end might live as people given over to righteousness. I will praise you, says the psalmist, with an upright heart as I learn your righteous judgments. That is the promise of the gospel, of God's righteousness and mercy to save sinners. So I say, brothers and sisters, that deep within this hard, alien psalm is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. I don't think the poet saw this clearly. He couldn't claim this promise with the certainty that we can. That's why in the last line here he says, do not utterly forsake me. Friends, that is a prayer that the Christian can know God has already answered. He has not forsaken us. And he will not forsake us. But what the psalmist does see is that God's word held before him a promise of righteousness, a promise of finally succeeding in obeying God and praising him as we ought to. That is the same promise the gospel holds before me and you through Jesus Christ. That the day will come when the salvation God has revealed in Christ is complete in us too by his spirit. And even now we may begin to praise him with an upright heart as we learn his righteous act in Christ. So friends, maybe this psalm need not be as alien as it might at first seem. Maybe this psalm can help us see the life of faith from new angles. This poet is an uncompromising fellow. If we spend time in his company, and I hope we will, he won't let us imagine that obedience is an unimportant matter. He will not let us avoid our failings and will ask us to examine ourselves under an uncomfortably bright light. But if we stay with him, I believe we will find a a renewed clarity about the goodness of God's word and the gift it is to be called to follow Jesus on a path of obedience. For now, as we begin, hear the way This psalm opens with the good news that although our sins are not a problem to be pretended away, our failures matter. Our shame is not for nothing. There is still set before us a promise of righteousness, a promise of being justified, and that promise is ours through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promise that is ours through Jesus Christ that we may praise you with upright hearts as we learn your righteous laws. Not because we are the blameless whose ways are blameless, the blessed that way, but because Jesus was that one and laid himself down for us. Teach us to follow after him in the way of your statutes. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.